It's so great to see these baptisms, to see Evan and Shumay and of course Sarah get baptized. And we're just excited for what God is doing around here. And, uh, you know, baptism is one of these things that Jesus commands us as his followers to do. It's, it's, uh, it's just a public declaration that we're followers of Jesus. In fact, baptism is really, uh, it's, it's a step of obedience. It's saying, God, you've asked me to do this. I want to do it. It's an act of identity. It's a, it's a matter of saying, uh, this is who I am. I identify publicly as a follower of Jesus. And it's an act of worship. It's a way that we say, God, you're worthy of my very life. I, I worship you in this. And so I want to ask you, if you are a follower of Jesus but have not been baptized, would you please get baptized soon? Would you, would you please take the next opportunity to get baptized? Not, not for our sake, not for the sake of the people watching, not, not for the sake of your spouse or your parents or anyone else, but because it's a call that Jesus has on your life to, to publicly declare that you're following after him. And it's really something that you should do regardless of where you're at in your walk with Jesus. You know, for some of you, you just have decided to follow Jesus and this is the time. You know, now is the time to say, yeah, I'm following Jesus. I'm going to be baptized. But for some of you, maybe it's been like Shimei, 30 years or more that you've wrestled around that and haven't had that, just taken that step of obedience. And it takes courage. Uh, it took courage. I mean, what Shimei did was a beautiful thing to say, no, at this stage, I'm going to publicly Proclaim that I'm a follower of Jesus. Wherever you are in that spectrum, even if it's more than that, I want to invite you, if you haven't been baptized, would you consider? We're doing a, another baptism. Uh, we're planning one for August 15th. And so if that's you, would you send an email either to one of us as a staff here, say, hey, I'm interested. Or if you don't know someone on staff personally, just uh, send a note to hello at ridgechurch.ca. And we'll uh, come alongside and talk and see, is this something that's working for you and help you? But we do want to encourage you. Follow God's uh, command, Jesus' call to be baptized. All right. Well, uh, we're going to turn back to uh, our series this week. Uh, in the opening pages of his well-known book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer writes this. He says this, I walked in the sunshine with a scholar who had effectively forfeited his prospects of academic advancement by clashing with church dignitaries over the gospel of grace. But it doesn't matter, he said at length, for I've known God and they haven't. It was a mere parenthesis, a passing comment on something I said, but it stru struck me and uh, set me thinking. And you know, it's an interesting comment he makes. It's the kind of thing that should stick with us and, and make us think. Because in case you missed it, you know, J.R. Packer's walking in a park or in a, you know, someplace with some academic who says, in essence, my career is totally stalled for, for good. And, it, you know, if you're not familiar with the academic world, you have to understand that that's a big deal in the academic world. The academic world is all about, you know, prestige and respect and reputation and position and, and career advancement is a big deal in the academic world. And he's walking with J.R. Packer and he says, really? All of that for me is gone now. It, it's, it, it's been sort of torpedoed because... Because he said, I stood up for the gospel of grace. Because, because he stood for righteousness and for what God wants him to. And, and you know, as a result of that, he hacked off somebody powerful somewhere who's making sure that he just won't go forward in any way. And for many people, that would be devastating. That, that, would, be, that would be shattering. I mean, it would lead to, to bitterness and anger and, and, and hate. And, and for some people, you know, downright like depression and, and hopelessness. And it would have shattered their world. But not this guy. This guy says almost in passing. He's like, but, but that doesn't matter because I've known God in my life and they haven't. And, and that's the kind of comment that should 
cause us to pause and say, you know, how is that possible? How, how can a person basically have their career crushed for unjust reasons and still be content? Where does that come from? You know, to be content, to find happiness regardless of our circumstances is a rare thing in the world around us today. In fact, more so than ever, contentment is hard to find. Uh, you know, if you're a single person, you might say, you know, if only, if only I was married, I'd be happy. But you know, once people are married, sometimes they say, well, actually, if only I could go back to being single, I'd be happy. Or, or, or maybe more likely they say, you know, if only I had kids, I'd be happy. But then, then if they have kids, they say, yeah, but if only my kids were turning out the way that I really hoped they would, then I would really be happy. Or sometimes we say like, well, if only I had the career that I really dreamed that I could have, th then I would be happy. Or if only I could make the kind of money I wanted to make. Or if only I could have a boat like, like it seems everyone in my neighborhood has parked in their driveway, then I'd be happy. Or if, if I could have the holidays I want. Or, 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 or for some of us, you know, for some of us, if there's been a major tragedy in our life, we've lost somebody so close to us or, or a major health issue, we say, oh no, all of that stuff isn't important. If only... If only I could have back that person that I love so much, or if I could, if I could have my health back, then, then I would be happy. You know, we, we live in a world filled with discontent. In fact, we live in a world that, that the historian Arthur Schlesinger uh, calls a world of inextinguishable discontent. We just, everywhere we go, there's that nagging feeling that somehow, somehow there must be more, that we, that we need more all the time. In, uh, in the book of Philippians that we've been studying, we're coming to the, near the end of the letter, and, and this is the topic that Paul is going to address now at, uh, at the end of, or near the end of chapter 4. Uh, just to give you some context again, you've got to remember, Paul writes his letter from a prison in Rome. And the, the Roman prison system, if you remember, didn't supply any of the needs of their prisoners. They, they didn't supply food or clothing or a bed to sleep on. So if somebody didn't supply those for that prisoner, then they went without food or clothing or without a, a bed to sleep on. And the church in Philippi had heard about this. And so they took this collection of money. They gave it to a guy named Epaphroditus who traveled 1,500 kilometers from northern Greece all the way to Rome to bring this incredible, generous, generous gift to the church in, in Philippi or to Paul from the church in Philippi. And now uh, Paul writes this letter in some ways in response to this gift. And at this stage in in his letter at, at the end at Philippians 4, chapter 10, now Paul is going to say thank you for this incredible gift. In fact, this is what he says. Philippians 4, verse 10, he says this. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Here, Paul says to the church in Philippi, thank you. Thank you, thank you for this incredibly generous gift. Uh, I know that you would have sent it sooner even if you could, but uh, circumstances obviously didn't make it possible. But I want you to know how grateful I am for this gift. But at the same time, he also wants them to know that his gratitude, his, his friendship with them is not based on the gift that they give to him. You know, in other words, he wants them to know, it's, look, I'm not suddenly your friend because you've given me this gift of money. I'm your friend just because, because of what God's doing among you. And the gift is just God's grace to me through you. But he says, but I want you to know that, that even before your gift came, that I was content. That I found how to be content in all situations. In fact, that's what he goes on to say next. Verse 11, he says this. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situa situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, 
and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul says, I've learned how to be content no matter the situation that I find myself in. In fact, this is, the, uh, this is the definition of contentment that we want to work with today. And that says contentment is to be at peace in your circumstances. And Paul says here, he says, look, there's two different sets of circumstances that I've learned to be content in. One of them, he says, is when I've been brought low, when I am in need, when I face hunger and hardship in my life. And the man knew all about hunger and hardship in his life. You know, in another, in another letter, in the second letter that he wrote uh, to the church in Corinth, he describes some of the hardship in his life. This is what he says. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city and in the wilderness and at sea and from false brothers. In toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. In other words, when the Apostle Paul gets talking about finding contentment in the midst of hardship, he's not talking from some sort of theoretical ivory tower. This man knows and understands what hardship is all about. And for most of us, we will never relate to that because, of course, by God's grace, we haven't had to walk through that. And yet there are times for all of us when, when it is, as Paul speaks, it's like we're brought low where we experience some sort of major setback in our life or, or, or where we face a tragedy, you know, we lose someone that we love or where we experience a significant health issue in our life. And the Apostle Paul wants us to know that when it comes to those things, he has learned how to be content in the middle of it. And what he speaks of, he speaks of from experience. So that's the first area of contentment that he talks about. But there's a second area of contentment. He, he says, and I've also learned to be content, he says, when my life abounds, when, when there's plenty, when, when things are going good. And, and, and this is a side of contentment that we don't often think about as much, but probably is one that we need to think about much more because it's probably much more common to where we find ourselves. Now, most of us say, well, no, not really. I don't know that I'd really put myself in the abounding, prosperous category. And we'd say, you know, Paul, that's a good problem. When I have, when I'm prosperous, when I got too much, then I guess I have to figure out how to be content with so much. Although I'm not sure how that would be a problem because I'll have so much. Uh, we think, you know, Paul's talking about those who are, who are rich. And he is. And when he's talking about that, that's us. Do you know that if you earn $25,000 a year or more, actually that's, Cana uh, that's American dollars, Canadian dollars is like 30,000. If you earn 30,000 or more a year, you are in the top 10% of the world's most wealthy people. Top 10% worldwide. And if you earn 34,000 US, that's 40,000 Canadian, you're in the top 1% of wealth in the entire world. You're, in the, you're the 1%. So you and I, we are the rich and, and the fact of the matter is, well, you know, most of us have not been beaten to within an inch of our life. We haven't been shipwrecked three times. Pretty much all of us now need to learn how to find contentment in the midst of the kind of wealth that we have. And that's not easy in the culture that we live in. 
At the heart of this culture that we live in, there is this, this belief that the more you have, the happier you are. And on top of that, in our culture, we face a pressure that other cultures or that, that, that Paul never had to face. And that's the pressure of advertising. Uh, you know, advertising is a multi-billion dollar industry. And, and it has changed so significantly over the course uh, of the last number of years since World War II. You know, if you've ever seen advertisements from before World War II, uh, they're almost naive in a way. I, I used to buy old life magazines, uh, not to read the articles, but to read the ads. And they're just so simple and so down home. They, they're, they're about quality and longevity and, and necessity. And, but, but after World War II, there was a significant change in the whole area of advertising. Uh, because the whole economy had to change. They had built all these factories to provide the material for the war. And when the war was done, they wanted to know what are we going to do with all these factories. And so uh, a number of key leaders in the economy decided they were going to shift how the economy went. And, and one of those was a Wall Street banker, a man named, uh, a man named Paul Mazur. Uh, and this is what he wrote back then at the end of World War II. He says this, We must shift America from a needs to a desires culture. People must be trained to desire, to want new things, even before the old have been entirely consumed. We must shape a new mentality. A man's desires must overshadow his needs. And if you look around us, you know that uh, they've been fabulously successful at that very thing. I mean, now we live in a, in a society, in an economy where we use money that we don't have yet to buy things that we don't need to put in our houses that are much bigger than they were in the 50s, even though our families are much smaller than they were in the 50s. And it's all based on this message that if you just buy one more thing, if you just buy whatever the latest product is, that you will be happy or, or at least happier. However, the the whole thing is built on this insidious lie because the whole thing is built on this need that, you know, the lie is that if you get this, you will be content. But in order to keep that system going, they have to continually create discontent. And so th that's how this whole system works that we find ourselves in. And, and so no matter how much uh, you have, you always want more. But it's not just outside that puts that pressure on us. There's also something within us that causes us to end up discontent. It's something called adaptation. And, and psychologists talk about this. The idea is that no matter what new thing you get, whether it's a new product or a new spouse or a new job or a new career, eventually what you thought would bring you such happiness doesn't satisfy. But let me explain how this works. You remember when you first got Netflix? I'm old enough to remember that when I first got Netflix, it was actually a program that you went on the computer and you could look at all the movies that they offered. You picked one, you put it in your in-basket, and it would send a message to the warehouse where somebody would pick a physical DVD, put it in an envelope, and mail it to your house. It was amazing. I mean, I didn't have to get up. I didn't have to go to Blockbuster to get my movie and bring it home. I just waited till it came in the mail. And when it came... I didn't have to watch it that night. I could watch it three days later or a week later, and then I could leave it lying around my house for another week before I mailed it back. No problem. It was like the greatest thing ever. And then they started streaming. And then it was even greater. I'm like, I, oh my goodness, I have hundreds, thousands of movies at my fingertips. I can get it the moment I want it and watch it. And it was, I mean, it was so amazing. 
Except for now, I've had it for a while. Now, I'm like, oh, no, not that. No, no, that was 45 minutes, an hour trying to find a show worth watching. And you know what I say at the end? You know what I say after an hour of looking for something worth watching? Can't see. I say, you know, if only I had Prime. If only I had Disney Plus. If only I had Crave or Hulu or something else. Then, then it would be better. See, that's adaptation. Simply put, we get used to what we have and, and then we start to take it for granted. And the problem is this, that as humans, we never seem to learn that this is always the case. And so as a result of that, every time we think something's going to give us satisfaction and it slowly stops doing that, we begin looking for something new to do that very thing for us. And, and we end up on this thing that the psychologist uh, Philip Brickman and Donald Campbell call the hedonist treadmill. It's, it's this treadmill that we're on no matter how wise we are at choosing those things that should give us satisfaction. No matter how careful we are at choosing those things, because of this thing that is built into us, eventually they stop giving us the kind of happiness and satisfaction that we think we want. And in the end, we're back to where we started. You just can't get ahead. Now, does that mean that money won't uh, make us happier? No, that's, money makes a difference in our world. Uh, to live in abject poverty is to live in misery. It's one of the reasons why Christ calls us to use our resources to help those who are poor to live a, a better quality of life. But this idea that unlimited money leads to unlimited happiness simply isn't true. There is a limit to how much money will increase your happiness. And they found that limit. That limit is $75,000 a year. In fact, uh, these uh, psychologists and this uh, psychologist and... Um, and uh, economists. The psychologist is uh, Daniel Kahneman and a Princeton economist, Angus Deaton. They spent months, months uh, working through 450,000 Gallup surveys on personal well-being. And what they found is that your well-being increases with your income until you hit a certain level and then it plateaus or sometimes even decreases. And here's what one of the, the, the leaders in that research wrote. He says this, no matter where you live, don't miss that line. No matter where you live, if it's very inexpensive to live or if it's one of the most expensive places in the world, like where we live. It says, no matter where you live, your emotional well-being is as good as it's going to get at $75,000. And money is not going to make it any better beyond that point. It's like you hit some sort of ceiling and you just can't get emotional well-being much higher just by having more money. And they looked, it doesn't matter how big your family is or how little it is, how many expenses or how uh, limited expenses you have. That's the ceiling. In other words, when it comes to money, you, if you're making somewhere middle class, 75,000, somewhere in that range, you can be as happy as the billionaire down the road. That's where money hits its limit. And this is so often the case. As so often is the case. The science finally is catching up and confirming what Jesus has told us all along. Is what Jesus says in Luke 12, 15. He says this, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Now, notice that Jesus isn't making a command here. He's not saying, you know, the, the command isn't, you know, thou shalt not buy more than three pairs of shoes. It's too bad he didn't. It would have been kind of helpful in my home. Uh, but but uh, rather he's just pointing out. He's saying, look, this is, this is a fact of life. This is just true about life. You're not going to find happiness by just having more and more stuff. And that's not only true on a 
on a, on a, on a personal level, it's true on a national level. Uh, in his book, uh, The American Paradox, Spiritual Hunger in an Age of Plenty, psychologist David Meir Myers points out that even as, as Western culture, as American, Canadian culture has grown in affluence like crazy, at the same time, the well-being has not grown with it. In fact, it has actually declined. Uh, he goes on to show this, that since 1960, the divorce rate has doubled. The teen suicide rate has tripled. The recorded violent crime rate has quadrupled. The unmarried parents has sextupled. And the rate of cohabitation without marriage, which scientifically is actually a pretty good predicator of eventual divorce, has increased sevenfold. And another psychologist pointed out that the rate of serious clinical depression has increased about 10 times over since 1900. So both on a personal level and on a national level, the idea that ever-increasing amounts of wealth and stuff somehow will lead to happiness has turned out to be an utter lie, which means that it's incredibly important in our lives that we find contentment. Contentment is necessary in your life for your own well-being, because you will never win if you just try to keep up with this treadmill of what our culture says. You won't win because the, the culture itself is set against you. There's this whole system that promises you contentment, but make sure that you remain discontent, discontent. But there's also an internal thing. The way God has created us, we will never find contentment in the creation, only in the creator. And that means that in our culture, not only are you battling your own sin nature, not only are you battling the, the temptation to compare yourself to everyone else, but you're also battling this multi-billion dollar industry that every day is flooding you with these messages about you can find contentment and happiness here. So if you're not going to find contentment by simply trying to get more stuff or a better this or more of that, you got to find it somewhere else. Otherwise, you're going to end up living a very unsatisfied and, and potentially even miserable life. You got to find contentment in your life, which leads us back to the ancient wisdom of the scriptures, of the, of, of the word of God. And, and here's the good news from this. And that's this contentment can be learned. Twice in this passage, the apostle Paul talks about learning how to be content. In verse 11, he says, it's not that I am uh, speaking of being in need for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And in verse 12, he says this, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. In other words, you can learn to be content. Now, that'll take some work. But, but as Dallas Willard points out, the cost of non-discipleship, the cost of not following the wisdom of Jesus is actually greater than the cost of discipleship, the cost of following Jesus. So there's a number of ways that, that you learn contentment. One is through gratitude. You know, my wife uh, has over the years sometimes walked alongside uh, other wives uh, who have uh, asked to meet with her and have just said to her, look, I'm so frustrated with my husband. I'm so uh, upset with him. I I'm going to leave him. I I'm done. And my wife has listened and, and cared for those ladies and, and walked with them and understood, of course, there's very real, very significant issues that they're dealing with. But somewhere along the way, She's always asked them to go back and to list out the good things in their husband, the, the, the good attributes. And sometimes they say, really? What? Are you kidding me? But as she's walked with them and helped them, they begin to list here in this area, in that area. And he's a good father and he does this. And, he, and, and, and that list, while not 
making the problems going away, while not sort of changing their marriage into some sort of magical, beautiful, perfect marriage. It's changed their perspective. And it's helped them understand that nobody gets a perfect marriage. Nobody gets a perfect spouse, but they can find some contentment in, in what God has given them in that particular person. And gratitude is so important in terms of, of having that kind of contentment. In fact, uh, Barry Schwartz, the, uh, the one, uh, the guy who uh, teaches a little bit about or talks a little bit about the diminishing returns that we experience due to this adaptation that we have, he writes this. He says, finally, we can remind ourselves to be grateful for what we have. This may sound trite, the sort of thing one hears from parents or ministers, come on, and, and then ignores. But individuals who regularly experience and express gratitude are physically healthier, more optimistic about the future and feel better about their lives than, than those who do not. And unlike adaptation, the experience of gratitude is something we can affect directly. Experiencing and expressing gratitude actually gets easier with practice by causing us to focus on how much better our lives are than they could have been or were before. The disappointment that adaptation brings can be blunted. In other words, he says, th this sense of adaptation, this thing that like will cause you to ultimately be disappointed, you can't control that. But the gratitude in your life, that you can. That you can practice. And the more you do it, the more you express it, the, the greater contentment comes into your life. J just previous to this, the Apostle Paul writes these words. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. One of the ways we learn contentment in our life is through, is through gratitude. The second way we learn contentment is simply to compare less. You know, there will always be somebody who has more or better than you. Guaranteed. It doesn't matter how much you make, how good your marriage is, how successful your kids are, how epic your holiday is. You will always find someone who has more money than you, whose marriage is better, whose kids are more successful, and whose worst holiday is better than your most epic holiday. It just is that way, which means that we have to learn to compare ourselves less to those around us. And this is more important than ever with all the social media in our world. You know, everything that you see on social media is a curated picture of someone's best life. You know, if you see a great picture of Nula and I on social media, you know that that's not the first picture we took or the seventh or the tenth. I mean, you know, the right angle and the right direction and the right lighting and the right. No, no. And, and I mean, what you see of us on social media is our absolute best life with a filter added. But I know the same is true for you. We all do it. Which means that if you are spending your time on social media and it's making you feel discontent about your life, you either need to begin to limit the amount of time you spend on social media, or you just need to remind yourself again that what you are seeing is nobody's real life. It's only their best life put forward the way it is. And for goodness sakes, please don't, don't sign up when you're you know, online or on an app for personalized ads. You know, they say, hey, give us your information. We can give you ads that are more appropriate to you. For goodness sakes, don't do that. The last thing you need is for them to continue to feed you these ads that tell you all the things that you already wish that you had in your life. Instead, make them seem like you're, you know, somebody that you're not so that you get ads for like sewing machines and tire alignments, things that you don't care about. So it doesn't breed that more discontent in your life. Second way that we learn to be content is to compare ourselves less to, those others, to others around us. And the third way that we need to learn contentment is by remembering the sovereignty of God in our lives. 
Remember that God has your life in, your, in his hands. You know, we don't live like the rest of the world, believing that whatever circumstances we are in are either a cruel twist of fate or the result of our own stupidity. Rather, we understand that whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, God's hand is at work in the midst of it. God is, is using and working among us to, to work in our lives the things that he wants. And remember again, at the beginning of Philippians, the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. In other words, whatever circumstances you find yourself in, you know that God is sovereign in those circumstances, that he's at work. In it. And so you can have peace in the middle of those circumstances. So there's a number of important ways that we can learn how to be content in our lives. But here the Apostle Paul, in this passage, he, he says, actually, there's, there's one more really key thing. He calls it the secret to contentment. He says, above all these other things, this is the key. This is the secret to knowing contentment. He says in verse 12, he says, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And here's the secret, verse 13. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Ah, such a great verse. But you know, it's a verse that's so often taken out of context. So often people just sort of rip this out of context and say, that verse means that I can be or do anything that I want. You know, I'm not a great singer, but I can, I can become a great opera singer uh, because I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Or, or I'm, I'm, I'm not a great chef. I don't know the difference between thyme and rosemary, but I can become a great chef because Christ gives me strength. That's not what the passage is saying. That, that's not what Paul is saying here. Rather, what the Apostle Paul is saying here in the context of this particular uh, passage is that contentment is found through my relationship with Jesus Christ. In other words, my contentment is found in my identity in Christ. Contentment is, as a follower of Jesus is not found in our circumstances, but rather is found in our relationship. I put it this way. Contentment is living at peace with your circumstances because you know who you are in Christ. In other words, if you've lost a bunch of things in your life, if as the Apostle Paul says, you have been brought low, it, it, that, that doesn't make you any less because who you are, your value, your, your meaning in life is not based on how much stuff or who is in your life or, you know, all these other things. Your value is based on the fact that you are found in Jesus, that your life is in him. And if you have a bunch of things, if, as Paul says, you abound with plenty, you're not driven by always just needing one more thing, just something else. Because again, your identity, your purpose, your meaning in life is not found in any of those things. It's found rather in the fact that you have a relationship with none other than Jesus Christ, the, the God of all creation. Barry Schwartz is a psychologist. Uh, again, you know, he, he wrote this amazing book. It's called The Paradox of Choice, Why More is Less. He talks about all of these things and and he concludes what's very clear already, that the money is not ultimately what leads to happiness in people's lives. So the question is this, what does? And here's what he says. Here's what the research finds. He says, what seems to be the most important factor in providing happiness is close social relationships. People who are married, who have good friends, and who are, uh, who are close to their families are happier than those who do not. 
People who participate in religious communities are happier than those who do not. Being connected to others seems to be much more important to subjective well-being than being rich. And he goes on to point out this fascinating paradox. He says, those who are happy end up in these deep, significant relationships that require them to give up all kinds of freedom. So for instance, if you're going to be married, that, that requires you to give up all kinds of freedom. You are no longer free to pursue, you know, other, other people to be in relationship with because you have committed to be in a relationship with your spouse. If you committed to a close friendship, that requires time and energy that you can't give to everything else. You have to give up some things to develop that kind of rich relationship. And he says it's so counterintuitive to what our culture says. But if you want to find happiness, if you want to find deep sense of contentment that gives you know, meaning and, and, and life to you, you need to bind yourself to those kinds of relationships that mean that you have less freedom in other places. And this is the secret that Paul is talking about. Paul is saying, you know, he's in prison. He's been stripped of everything else. And he says that the, the greatest possible relationship that anyone can have is with Jesus Christ, the son of God himself. And to bind yourself to that relationship, to, to bind yourself, to walk in the way that he calls you to, to live the kind of life that he calls you to, which means giving up all kinds of other things, ultimately is the path to happiness. Ultimately, it leads to contentment regardless of the situation of your life, regardless if it is going so well or if it's going so hard. That, the Apostle Paul says, is the secret to contentment. Which leads us back to the, the story that we started with, the, the guy walking with J.I. Packer somewhere out in the sun, whose career, whose, whose, whose future career options were, were utterly crushed. H how is it that he can say, it doesn't matter? The answer is, he says, because I know God. Because my relationship, my, my value, my purpose, my meaning in life is not found in all of that. It's found in knowing who I am in God through Jesus Christ. You see, he found the same secret that the Apostle Paul did. So here's the question for you today. Do you know God? You know, if you're someone who doesn't know God, you're like, yeah, I'm tired of this, this treadmill that I'm on of always trying to find happiness and contentment in a place that ultimately doesn't. And I try something else and that doesn't. You know, the answer is you need to find God in your life. And the way you do that is through Jesus Christ, his son. And to do that, you, you, you need to admit that you're a sinner, that you have not done things the way that God commands and calls us to. And you need to believe that Jesus paid the price for your sins and, and opened the door to a relationship with God through his death and resurrection. And you need to commit to follow him. And if you do that, if you commit to that kind of a thing, then God's going to enter into your life in a beautiful way and, and begin to change and transform your life in all kinds of ways. And if you do that today, then, then I want to encourage you, I want to invite you, you know, send me a note. You just send it to hello at ridgechurch.ca and just say, hey, I, I want to follow God you know, give me a little more direction. Where do I go from here? And myself or someone else would love to just give you a bit of advice for where to next. But then for those of us who are already following Jesus, the question for you is this. Are you finding your identity in Jesus? Are you growing that relationship with Jesus? Not, not just more knowledge about Jesus, not just more knowledge about all those things out there and what it means, but are you growing your relationship with Jesus Christ? You know, in this summer when hopefully things are slowing down, when there's more time to go for walks and be at the beach and go to the park and go for a run, would you commit to spend just a little more time building that relationship with Jesus? Saying, you know, I, I want to pray more. I, I just want to spend more time with him.
Because you see, it's out of that relationship. It's out of finding your identity in him that you will find the kind of contentment that is in such short supply in this world. And that, that's well worth doing. Would you join me? Let, let me pray. Oh God, we come to you today and God, we thank you again for the wisdom of your world. It's the ancient wisdom that comes from the very throne of God himself. Wisdom for how we are to live in this life, right here, right now. Father, in a world where there's such discontent, this inextinguishable discontent, God, you've shown us the secret, the, the, the way to find content. And contentment is found in you, in a, in a relationship with you through Jesus. And so God, I pray again today, Lord, that you would help us to get our eyes off of all of those other things and to focus again on, on what we have in Christ, on who he is for us and what he has done in our life. And Father, out of that, may there flow this sense of peace, regardless of whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. Father, may there be a happiness, a joy in our life because of what Jesus has done. So Father, meet us where we are. Draw us on, teach us. Lord, may we learn this contentment by the power of your spirit in our life. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.